you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, found on page 91 in your pew Bibles. We'll also, after reading from Exodus, flip a few pages further to Exodus 35 and read verses 1 to 3. Before we read, let us ask for God's blessing. Dear Lord, our God, our Savior, we pray that you would give to us an understanding of your word as we hear it read, as we meditate on it. May the words that are spoken here today be true, be according to your word and accurate, and may we apply them to our hearts that we would see what needs to be cut off, what needs to be put away, as well as be encouraged by the gospel message, encouraged by who you are. As we specifically think today of the Sabbath, of resting and worshiping in you, we pray that we would do just that in our own lives. Bless the reading and preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we read Exodus 31. We'll be focusing primarily on verses 12 through 18. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed Aholiab, the son of Ahizamark, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lamp stand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons, for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel, and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of the stone written with the finger of God. Now if you would turn... Exodus 35, just a few pages, read verses 1 through 3. 
As you're turning there, just to be aware of what we're skipping over and will cover is the account of the sin of the golden calf and what happens. We'll go through that in detail. But I want us to see how that whole event that happens is bookends, is bookended by these two Sabbath commands. Third chapter 35 picks up where the golden calf and sin finally ends, and it says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. And thus ends the reading of God's word. The quickest way to forget something is to assume you know it. The quickest way for an important practice and principle to fall away, even in the church, is to assume we understand its importance, to understand why we gather together, why we worship, why the Sabbath is important, why is the Lord's Day important, and if we just assume we all got it, obviously we we understand it, we're here today. If we assume our kids understand it because they see us doing it, we are grossly mistaken. Church history is full of plenty examples of churches, as time has passed, lost the importance of worship, lost the importance of the Sabbath day. As it slowly dwindles away in its importance, as worship becomes less attended, it's it's sparse, the understanding of what we're doing and why even the excuses for which we'll put in place of worship become more and more everyday, run-of-the-mill and mundane, well, why is that? How do we understand the Sabbath today? And this is a very important question. It's one that I would put first to the parents. Parents, this is for you to hear, to see, am I displaying to my own family, to my children, how important the Sabbath day is? Not just in that I'm doing it, but in speaking to them about it and speaking to my kids to put it on display that I really value this time that I show that I care about this activity, worshiping the Lord, that I care about the people of God so much that I will be there and I will bring my family there. Do you as fathers put this into practice? Would, their ki- would your kids see that you do value this? Moms, would they see you as well supporting this, worshiping, bringing your children to worship as this is important? to rest in the Lord. And so I put it to the parents, but who I really want to put it to today is to the young people. You see, young people, especially young adults, those who are in middle school, high school, as you grow, it's quite easy to keep and observe the Sabbath, to keep and observe the Lord's Day, because your parents are and you go with them. But what about the time when it's on you, which comes also quickly? When you make the decision, am I going to prioritize worship? When I get my own place and my own job, when I go off to school, am I going to find a church that is a true church? Am I going to be committed to worship off of my own desire for what I believe is right? And so this is important that we hear it, that we not assume we understand it. If we assume that, we will lose it in only a generation or two. And what are we losing? You know, we don't want to just rigorously guard traditional worship. Oh, we wear the URC. We can't lose two services, or we can't lose that, because that's what we do. That's not what we lose. 
we lose the importance of worshiping God. We lose the importance of praise, of love for God, of that corporate understanding of the assembly of God's people. It's more than just this is what we do, and so we do it. We worship the Lord. That is the reason we were created in the last several weeks as we looked at Psalm 150. Last week we looked at Exodus 30, and we saw the purity of worship what we're called to do, and we see that all come together today on the Sabbath and how we're to understand it. Will the Lord's Day fall away in its importance? I promise you, and I promise you, young people, if your commitment to worship weakens, so will your faith. It is that simple. If your commitment to worship the Lord weakens, so will your faith. Your faith and its strength is tied up into worship, into regularly hearing God's word proclaimed, seeing it visibly in the sacraments, praying and gathering together with the people of God, giving of your gifts, gifts, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. These are all what God has ordained not only to worship him, but what strengthen your own faith. And if your commitment to worship wanes, your faith cannot remain strong, just as your body will be weak without activity and exercise, just as your mind will be weak without proper rest and nourishment. Your spiritual life will not be strong if you do not strongly keep and honor the worship of the Lord. And we see that in our own text today. Today I want to look at two points Rather simple, first, and very briefly, we're going to look at the Old Testament Sabbath. And then our second point would be to look at the New Testament Lord's Day. And how are we to keep it? What has changed? Our passage clearly shows the Sabbath's importance. We see in these verses that it begins, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Other translations say something to the effect, You must surely keep my Sabbaths. It's a strong language the Lord gives The text gives a strong call of Sabbath-keeping. It highlights the ultimate purpose for dwelling with God was to worship. We just finished the whole account of the creation of the tabernacle as it's foretold. This is what you are to do. And then in the very place where it institutes in the beginning of the chapter, these are the men to make it. It then goes right away into, even as you're making these things, keep the Sabbaths. Understand that that even such a high calling, one is to still rest, to still keep the Sabbaths. And God places so much emphasis on it, but why? We have This is like the third or fourth time in Exodus we've come to the commands of the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath command is the most quoted, cited commandment in the Old Testament. The Sabbath. Even as we read God's law, you'll see both in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, there is a long explanation for what the Sabbath is there for. Creation. Resting in Him. This is what God did. It's it's grounded in creation, so this is what God's people were to do in the Old Testament. And this is why He places so much on it. The Sabbath was fundamentally a sign of trust in the Lord. Sabbath was fundamentally, first and foremost, a sign of trust in God. The Sabbath wasn't supposed to be about do this and don't do this, even though it became that to a large degree. The reason it is the most cited of these commandments is it was about trust. Are you living a life of trust? Are you living a life that rests in God? 
Our text shows that importance. It's a sign that they may know, as our text says, that the Lord sanctified them. It was a sign that he had called them out and set them apart to be holy, and each Sabbath would perpetuate that. They were different from those around them. They took a day to rest, and Exodus is so distinct in that they came from slavery in Egypt without rest, being worked to death, to a God who gives them rest. It gives them the true rest to say, rest in me and not in all these other things. Trust in me. And that's why it's that fundamental sign. It's a weekly sign, sort of like a weekly weed killer. Your idols become evident every week as you gather to worship. Your idols will be placed in front of God's word. And in the Old Testament context, they may not have worshipped the same way we do. They did worship on that day. It was a day to rest. But what is rest? Is it mere you just don't work? Well, that's a part of it, certainly a part of the Old Testament Sabbath. But what it gave them the opportunity to do was to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt and were brought out to worship and serve the Lord. So it was resting in God or worship. That's what they did in the Sabbath. Psalm 92 shows this. Psalm 92 is a, is a psalm that is, the heading of that psalm says, a song for the Sabbath. That's the heading of Psalm 92, and this is what Psalm 92 says. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. And so this psalm, as it's, the heading is indicated, this is a psalm for the Sabbath, is about singing the praises of the Lord and, and having joy in Him. Another text that gives the importance of the Old Testament Sabbath, Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 describes the coming exile of the people. And in a list of, of what it gives to, if you do these things, the exile will be removed. You will not be exiled if only you would do blank. And in that list of Isaiah 58, we come to verse 13 and 14 that say this, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One of the greatest reasons for the exile was that the people profaned the Sabbath. That weekly sign of trust, weekly sign of rest, that in our text today we read, above all, or surely keep the Sabbath. And sadly, that is not what the Old Testament saints were, were committed to but the Sabbath was extremely important. It became evident that God was less important. I want to read this. This is something I came across that explains these harsh penalties. You read these penalties of the Sabbath, and you, you might think, well, that's a bit much, isn't it? If anyone's found working, in fact, there's text later in God's Word where an Israelite is found gathering wood on the Sabbath that he might make a fire, and it was deemed as inappropriate that Israelite was executed and killed, and we would hear that and think, wow, that's harsh. Well, this is what one has to say about that. The penalties seem harsh, but not when we realize what the Sabbath was intended to do. By not keeping the Sabbath, the Israelite was showing that he or she was not interested in knowing God. 
Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion. It was a repudiation of the covenant. It was a way of saying to God, and pay very close attention to this, it was a way of saying to God, my relationship with you isn't important to me. You're not worth the time it would take to get to know you. That's fundamentally what's at the heart of failing to worship the Lord, failing to rest in him. God, you're just not that important. You're just not that significant. You know, these other things that I pursue, those are, I'll be willing to sacrifice that weekly day of rest, of worship. I can sacrifice that for all these other things, and that's what Israel did in the Old Testament. And I hope as we say it that way, you see, boy, these penalties are quite fitting to the people God called out to worship him and called them not to keep some, just some horrible thing, but to rest, to rest in him, to trust. And a failure to do that, and this is what we have to examine in our own life today, is, is our Sabbath-keeping more just mere traditionalism? Will we fall away and not see it that important to worship the Lord because, frankly, there are other things we'd rather do? There are other gods we'd rather know. That's where it comes down to. That's the importance of the Old Testament Sabbath. But now we move to our second point, the New Testament Lord's Day. And that's the big question. As you look at the Old Testament Sabbath, it becomes, well, what about today? How do we keep it today? What are the Sabbath regulations today? And this is an issue that's incredibly important in our culture, in our day, and one that we don't seldom think enough about. It's difficult. It's difficult at times to answer this. There are certain ceremonial elements to the Sabbath that are no longer binding on us. We don't, in fact, keep what is truly the Sabbath. The Old Testament Sabbath has been, in that sense, done away with. We don't worship on Saturday anymore. The day itself has changed. There were ceremonial elements to that day that we are no longer required to keep and that the church doesn't keep. And so we have to understand, well, then what is binding? How do we keep this day? The day of its observance has changed. What else has changed about it? You know, in the New Testament, we don't even call it the Sabbath. We do speak about it, appropriately so. It's not wrong to speak of this day as a Sabbath, but we understand the New Testament terminology of this is actually the Lord's Day. Well, how do we take it? Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees shows there can be a slavishness to Sabbath-keeping that's not in accordance with God's word. The Pharisees took this command so far as to try and clearly define what work could be, what all things were work and what considered work, and thus there was a whole list of extra-biblical commands, commands that God had never give, given that the people were to keep. You could see, as you read the Gospels, one of the greatest points of contention between the Pharisees and Jesus was his Sabbath-keeping, or in their eyes, his lack thereof. They thought Jesus was a profaner of the Sabbath because they had taken it to levels God had never instituted or commanded. They also didn't understand the Sabbath and took it slavishly to the point where they would not do works of mercy and necessity for those who needed it so they could keep that rigid understanding of it, which wasn't in keeping with God's understanding and giving of the Sabbath. The command to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy is a part 
of the moral law of God. We read it every week when we read the Ten Commandments. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It's not done away with, but then how do we keep it? It's also grounded, as we already said, in creation. It's a creation ordinance. It reflects exactly what God did then, and that was before the giving of the law. That was before Israel had become a nation called out. There was the understanding of Sabbath in the very framework of creation itself. But here, this is very important as we look at it from a New Testament perspective. How do we see it? Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25, very important when we understand how we are to honor the Lord's day and worship God. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says the following, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what does Hebrews say to the people? It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. How do we help one another? Well, don't neglect to meet together, as is, it says, the habit of some. But encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. There is that call in God's word to understand you are to gather together. Do not forsake these assemblies and these gatherings, for this is the very way you will be encouraged in love and good works. This is the very way you will be encouraged in your faith. Don't forsake the assembly. And we see in that very call, there was an assembly to forsake. They gathered. They regularly gathered for worship. And God's word says, do not forsake that. God's word calls us to partake of preaching, sacraments, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, giving of our gifts, prayer and corporate prayer, meditating on God's word. All those elements of scripture that God does command require a service requires a gathering together to worship the Lord. You see, we see in the New Testament, it's not just done away with. It's been transformed. And the way the New Testament church worshiped the Lord was far different than what an Old Testament Sabbath looked like. But you see, you still honor a day in seven. You rest to worship. That's what we are called to do. And all these reasons then necessitate that But what about certain obligations for keeping this? And this is when it becomes more difficult. The Belgic Confession in Article 32 says that the order and discipline of the church is necessary, but it must be proper. This is what Article 32 of the Belgic says. We reject all human innovations and all laws imposed on us in our worship of God, which bind and force our consciences in any way. I'm going to pause the reading there. The Belgic was written in that time of a Roman Catholic Church and all the ways in which they imposed various laws of worship, all the ways they had changed. And so you would see it would be keeping with the Reformation to say, we reject all these newfound laws and, and, and constricting of consciences with how you are to worship the Lord. We reject that. And what they're saying is we worship the Lord as he has called us. And the church is to go no further in constraining people's consciences than what God's word does. That's what the Belgic is saying. We don't impose on God's people what shouldn't be imposed, what doesn't have scriptural warrant But then it continues and says, So we accept only what is proper to maintain harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, excommunication with all it involves, according to the word of God, is required. Where am I going with this? Here. We see that the church is still called to gather, to assemble, to worship. 
We see as well that it's, the church is not supposed to con- constrict consciences where it shouldn't. But we also see there's been an authority given to the church and specifically to the elders, the leadership of the church, to order worship, to call for it, to call for the call to worship. And there is that authority then that when our spiritual leaders, our elders, do call the worship of the saints... We should not treat that idly, or we should not treat that as not important, nor should we forsake that unless we have good reason. And there is good reason at times. There are works of mercy that must be performed. There are works of necessity that have to be done. We understand that. We understand that there are circumstances and situations, there are sicknesses and various things that can prevent us from gathering together to worship. But in your minds you should see, when we are called to worship God by our spiritual authorities, and when God's word says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints, it's the very thing that will strengthen your faith, then we ought not to reject gathering to worship our Lord for light reason. We better have good reason. To say, I can't make it, I can't attend. The church is called to enforce the order and discipline of God's word. And thus leaders of the church are called to be diligent to enforce it, but also to be wise to go no further than the word of God does. But again, so what? Generally, people want answers to questions like, is it lawful for me to do X on Sunday? Am I all right if I want to go and do this or go to this place? Is this activity okay? These questions become very difficult. They become very difficult to answer, and there is no one-size-fits-all answer to these questions. Depending on what's being asked, this can be difficult to answer, and it's really most often a matter of the heart and maturity and wisdom before it's a simple do and don't do. Before we arrive at, well, can you do this? There's a whole lot of, well, why are you wanting to do this? And why do you not want to worship? And what's preventing that? And and there's a whole lot that needs to be considered. It isn't just a simple do or don't do, but it is a heart issue. There are right answers. But you can't I can't stand here, nor anyone can stand here and say, All right, let's go through the list. And I would roll out the scroll and it would roll down and outside the church and we'd start going and say, All right, you can do this and not this, and that's very Pharisaical. That's not understanding what the Lord's day is to be. We should have a proper understanding of it. There are two extremes we want to avoid. We want to avoid dishonoring the fourth commandment by just slackness or lackness, not not keeping it well, not giving it thought. And we also want to avoid an over-strictness, constricting consciences that God's word has freed. And we ought not to constrict. As one URC pastor says, and this is helpful, He talks about the Synod of Dort. And the Synod of Dort, if you don't know, not only contributed to us the canons of Dort, a refutation, a a defense against the attack of the Arminians, it also gives a lot of information about other things, the Sabbath being one of them. They discussed these things. This pastor who has done a lot of work on the Synod of Dort says, The Synod of Dort discussed many such questions about keeping the fourth commandment. And they came to the conclusion that a certain amount of it in some respects, and even in the sense of the strictness imposed upon the Jewish people, is ceremonial. There's a certain sense in the, the strictness of the keeping of it is, in a sense, ceremonial. Why? Because in that time, God was seeking to show them his holiness and to show them their sins. 
It was to lead them to Christ by a tutor, to in a sense beat them and show them their sin and that they could not keep the law and be righteous to lead them to the one who could keep it to lead them to righteousness. And so the certain strictness of God's word of, for instance, executing a Jew who dishonored the Sabbath by gathering wood for the fire, there's a certain strictness of it that is removed, that isn't observed today. And yet at the same time, the overall principle of the importance of the Lord's day remains. That we are to rest in the Lord. The Synod of Dort also gave some points that are helpful, and these are helpful. I know it's hard to track with all this, but these are discussions every one of us will have on what is appropriate to do, and these principles help us understand it. I'm going to go through these. The Synod said, in the fourth commandment of the divine law, part ceremonial and part is moral. We've already said that. There's a ceremonial side of the fourth commandment that we no longer keep. There's a moral side of the fourth commandment that we still keep. The second point, the rest of the seventh day after creation was ceremonial and its rigid observation peculiarly prescribed to the Jewish people. The third point that the canons of Dort, the Synod of Dort said, part of the Sabbath is moral, in fact, because the fixed and enduring day of the worship of God is appointed for as much rest as is necessary for the worship of God and holy meditation of him. And what that's point, that point is saying is we ought not to let anything interfere with the worship of God. We are to rest. We are to rest in such a way that the, the worship of the Lord is not thwarted. The fourth point, with the Sabbath of the Jews having been abrogated or, or done away with, the Lord's Day is solemnly sanctified by Christians. That's the understanding. Strictly speaking, we don't keep the Old Testament Sabbath. We keep the Lord's Day. Five, from the time of the apostles, this day was always observed in the ancient Catholic Church. It means they always observed a day of rest and a day to worship since the day of the apostles who gathered on the Lord's Day, showing that it's in keeping with God's Word and what we are called to do to continue that practice, albeit in a different way. Six, this same day is thus consecrated for divine worship, so that in it one might rest from all servile works which these accepted, which are works of charity and pressing necessity, and from those recreations which impede the worship of God. What is that six point saying? It's saying we rest from all of the servile works. What's servile? That has the idea of a slavish-type labor, so our, our laboring, we, we, we rest from all the, the laboring that we would do in that way so that we may worship God, except those works that are necessary or acts of mercy. And it also says that we rest from any recreations which would impede the worship of God. Now that's very helpful when we're thinking of this. Does that mean, hey, should I go out and go to this event? Should I just ignore worship? Well, no. It's saying that if, if these recreations, if what you want to do, even for your own just fun that might even be allowed on the Sabbath, if that prevents the worship, well, then that's not a good thing. You shouldn't be engaging in these activities that would prevent you from worshiping people with the people of God. So they're helpful to consider, but... There's a step often skipped in these debates. What's that step? We jump so quickly to the line of no return. How close can I go to breaking the Sabbath without breaking? How close can I get 
to filling this day with the things that I want to do and yet still fulfill it. It's not the idea we want to have. It's not about how much I can get away with. It should be about how much can I keep this wonderful day? How much can I fill it with good activities, with those that are honoring to God and with those that give me rest in Him? Preparing me for the week ahead? To meditate on Him as we also do things in the day that are restful and enjoyable, as we keep the day well. We can so fill the day that it just becomes like any other, and we lose that idea of resting in God. Or we can so eliminate activities of the day that becomes an idle day of nap. Naps aren't wrong, obviously. I'm sure we all enjoy a good nap on Sunday. But we could so keep the day where it becomes literally a boring day to sit, reflect on nothing, maybe sleep, and idle it away. Well, that's not the point either. The point is to rest in the Lord. Fill it and fill it well. Fill it in such a way you don't impede worship. Fill it in such a way that you are enjoying the creation and the day of God, but you are also praising Him in every respect. That's just a sign of what every day is ought to be. And so we keep that day as a mark of that, of what eternity will be, because the Sabbath in that way has been fulfilled in Christ. We have Him. He is our eternal rest. And that way we're to keep it in Him But then the debate often goes something like this. I don't need to go to church every week or twice on Sunday because God didn't command it. We get right back to that. How do we keep it? How far can I go? And it's true, there are no commands that say you are to worship on the Lord's Day X amount of times. There is no command that literally says that, that explicitly. But when a call to worship is made by our governing authorities... We ought to and should gather together to worship him unless there is a good, God-glorifying, or needed reason that does prevent us. It's for our good. That's why we have the church and given elders authorities to call them. It's a necessity. Worship needs to be done. Our leaders need to govern it. The amount of times need to be set. The time of worship needs to be set. All these things are particulars that require our leaders and require our submission to those leaders. But we aren't slavishly constricting consciences that says you can only miss if your nose is running this amount. And you have to be coughing this amount of times before you can miss. That's not it. Much is left to your own discretion when you are wondering, am, am, am I, should I go? I'm sick. There's this work that needs to be done. I'm not talking about the, the labors of our, our day. I'm talking about more like works of necessity and those type of things. These, these things that need to be done, is this warranted? Is this a good reason for us to miss? You see how it goes really to our heart? That we should want to worship. We shouldn't want to miss it. And even in the times we don't want to come, and that happens, we still prioritize it. That we love God so much that we show He is more important to us than all other things. That's the biggest point here. It's the heart. What we display to God when we live in such a way that we would regularly ignore corporate worship. What do we display? We display what we said earlier. God, you're just not that important. And we're missing a great opportunity to grow closer to Him. By this, we end up saying something about our relationship 
with God because it is a choice to either prioritize it or not. Now we also might argue and say we go too far. These are the ty- I'm trying to, to give the type of critiques we hear those make about our practices and what the church does. Some would argue you go too far and they would, they, sh- they would say we should be by that line of reasoning only ever able to read the Bible and come to church and to listen to sermons. Why not have to spend all day, every day at church? Where does it stop? That sort of, again, shows kind of heart such a question would come from, but we'll answer it. All right, this is the charge thrown against us. Well, God has called us to work and support our families. 1 Timothy 5.8 condemns the one who would neglect to provide for his own household. He institutes days of work. And we would actually sin against him if we allowed worship to become such an activity, corporately gathering, where we weren't able to provide for our families. Now we are sinning against God by what we're doing. Because he calls us to work and to labor. And so you see what I'm getting at is there's a time to work, there's a time to dance, there's a time to celebrate, to sleep, to rest, and to worship, and we are to use our wisdom in that and specifically listen to our elders as they have deemed this is an appropriate use of the time to gather together and worship at this time and this many and this many times. That it isn't that burden then, it's something we rejoice in. This also applies in the exact same way to those who would keep the Lord's Day like a Pharisee indeed only and outside of their heart. Going to every service, tithing every offering, giving of your time is meaningless without a heartfelt desire to worship. We waste our time then, and it's both sides. We don't gather together because we must and we don't want to. Nor do we skip worship because we just don't care. We gather to worship from our hearts. Before you even get to the questions that you will have to wrestle with, is this right for me to do on the Lord's Day? You should first consider the questions of the heart and what's best for you and most glorifying to God. Parents, what's best for my children? What's best that I display to expose them to more of the means of grace, more of God's word, more preaching, more prayer, more relationships with the saints who we are connected with and joined to spiritually? Is that better or is it better for us to just go home and take a walk and have our frozen pizza? By the way, I have a frozen pizza almost every Sunday evening. I love frozen pizza on Sunday. I bet many of you do. But do we interfere with worship in that way. What's what's best? There's there's wisdom here. And it, it's amazing how many Christians show themselves to be profoundly unwise and skip the most important thing of their life because they are tired. Is sleep more important than worship? Well, actually, not to disparage sleep, but worship is more important. It's better to rest in the Lord than it is even to have our bodies rested. That's not saying, okay, then live in such a way you don't rest your bodies. What's the most important priority of your life? We sadly, and this is all of us too, too often look on the Lord's day and we don't like it. We don't use it well. Our hearts aren't what they should be. One commentator says about what we're doing on this day, the Lord's Day is a vacation for the soul. We would just think of it that way. This is a vacation for the soul. It's a day to revel in the wonders of God. What is the word revel in? That's where you just, all your emotions are in this. You just 
bask in it. You're sitting glorying in what this is. So we're, it's a day to revel in the wonders of God and the mysteries of his word. It is a day to regain perspective before we launch into another week with all the difficulties and distractions of daily life. We take a day to remember who God is and who we are in relationship to him. In essence, this day is gorgeous. It's beautiful. Why do we need to say that? Because its day is also hard. It's a fast-paced day when you prioritize worship. You can't really fit much else in, and that's not a problem. Now, we need to have a wise understanding. There is rest as well, and so we have to try to structure both of them in an appropriate way. But we need to always hear this call to be reminded, gathering to worship the Lord, gathering to keep His Lord's day is beautiful and given by Him so that we could be one, encountering him more and blessed, graciously given strength. It is a beautiful day. That's also what we witness as those who don't prioritize it. They will, they will grow away. There will be weakness if you don't prioritize it. I've seen it. I am not old by any stretch of the imagination. I am young and haven't been in this long, and yet I've been to churches. I've been in pulpit supply situations on internships, and it is always the, the members of the church that show priority of worship, not only every day in devotions and family worship, but especially corporate worship. It's those families that are the backbone of the church and the most healthy members. Now, can there be exceptions to that rule? Absolutely, there are. But it is a general rule of thumb that I've seen and that others have seen when you rightly prioritize worship, it is those families that are the most spiritually prosperous. Those that stand true most often. Not because, okay, they do this. So let's add this into our calculators. This plus this means this. Worship plus this means faithfulness. It's an overflow of their heart. And so if you want to, for yourself or for your family, to reach that point of spiritual maturity, it's about saying, I need to worship correctly and prioritize it. And by that overflow of your heart and the fruit of your faith, God blesses, increases your strength, and gives you grace. Now as we close today, you've noticed I've taken great care not to bind consciences by setting up Sabbath laws that God doesn't. Again, it's not about uh, an elder even being even having the authority to stand up and say, you must worship X amount of hours in the week, and you must spend this amount of time in work and rest. It's not about that. It's about heart issues, your desires to obey the will of God. The principles we follow in the Lord's day are these. We rest from our labors so that we may worship and praise God. It is that simple resting from labors, recreation, and other things so that we might prioritize the worship of God. And this is all for Christ. I know that we just spend all the time going through the ins and outs of it, but it's necessary. We all have these Sabbath questions. We all encounter friends and family who think differently or who think or ask the questions why, and we ought to know it or we'll forget it and lose it. And so having dealt with all that, the prime reason of this is what we're doing right now to glorify Christ. This worship service, New Testament worship service, is a service designed to put him at the center and to, to sing of him, to pray to him, to read his word and to meditate on him 
to even give, in a sense, our oaths to him. What do I mean by that? I mean as we gather together and profess our faith, it's a continual saying, Lord, I serve you. So every service is for worship of Christ, for the worship of our great triune God. That is why we worship. That is the desire of our hearts. And in a way that shows we know God, we know Him as our Lord and our life, and we prioritize Him above everything else. Above families, above friends, above everything else, we prioritize Him. That's how we keep the Lord's Day in the New Testament. That's how we show Him praise. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our great Lord and Savior, we thank you for the opportunity and the call even, not just the opportunity, the call that you give to gather together to worship you. We do ask that we would so prioritize this day for the right reasons and that this day would not be relegated to one day in seven, but would be a mark of what we do every day and in a different way but that comes to its, in one sense, earthly culmination in corporate worship. Let us, not, let us not reject or be in the practice of ignoring the assembly of the saints. May you transform our hearts to desire it more and to keep it well, not keeping it for no reason, not ignoring it, but keeping it for you as we would hope to do every day. We praise you for the opportunity that you give the grace you give in resting in you. We pray this in